Well, if you've got your Bibles here, please turn to Philippians chapter 1, and we're reading from 9 to 11. If you are able to stand, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that brings life to us, that causes us to to repent of our sins and to uh, sanctify us. Lord, we pray that your word would find fertile soil in our hearts. And Lord, we ask for your, your, that you would bless now the preaching of your word and that you would speak deeply to our hearts through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, you may have heard the increasingly popular catchphrase, love is love. And on the surface, it sounds something uh, virtuous and, and good. I mean, what could possibly be wrong with, with love? In fact, hasn't Jesus commanded us to, to love one another? But the agenda that's really behind this phrase is a a love that is devoid of truth. Because it, it doesn't really matter who you love, whether it's love between two men or two women, or whether it's any relationship that is is unwise. That doesn't matter. As long as you follow your heart, you go with your feelings. It is seen as as legitimate and and good. Now, we only need to look around us to see that this understanding of love is not working. I mean, just look at how confused the world is. I mean, we can't even agree on a definition of woman, for example. And this utter confusion that abounds is just leading more people to go on therapy, on antidepressants. There's a rise in divorce. And all these things are really just the end point of following your heart. Now, in this morning's passage, we get an insight into Paul's prayer here for his, his beloved Philippian church. Now, those who, it's your first Sunday this morning, we've just started this new series in, in the epistle to the Philippians. Uh, So we are third sermon in, and in this prayer, Paul prays that instead of being tempted by the lure of the world, that these Philippians would, would abound in love, but not a love that's devoid of truth, but instead a love that is rooted in truth, in fact, in God himself. And that understanding this love, it would cause them to live in purity and blamelessly for Christ's glory. So for us, what we're going to see this morning is that we'd also see that um, 
we would live in, in a love that is rooted in truth and would lead to a life of, of righteousness before God in Christ. So there are three points. First point is love overflowing. Second point, love rooted in truth. And lastly, love leading to righteousness. So let's kick off with love overflowing from, from verse 9. Now, last week we looked at the verses just preceding this morning's text. And we saw last week that God finishes what he starts. And so we looked at what we call the, the doctrine of, of, predestined, of, of perseverance of, of the saints. And if you haven't listened to that sermon, I'd suggest you look it up on our podcast app and um, have a listen to it. Because it's, it's really important stuff and it influences what we're going to look at today. And perseverance of the saints is this biblical truth that teaches that God empowers all believers in Christ by the Holy Spirit to finish the race and to not fall away. And that's something that is incredibly comforting and something that gives us as Christians a lot of strength and is the source of, of joy and, and hope in our lives. Now Paul changes gear here and he starts to pray for his Philippian brothers and sisters. So these three verses are basically Paul's prayer. Now prayer seems to be a perennial struggle for, for most Christians. Whether it's finding enough time to pray, um, being distracted during our, our prayer time, or even knowing exactly what to pray for. And it can, it can be challenging. But thankfully, the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark regarding prayer. The, the Bible instructs us in many places, in fact, on how we should pray and what we should pray for. Now, the obvious example is Jesus' own pattern for prayer which we find in, in Matthew 6, and it's, it's which we call the Lord's Prayer. But here in these verses in Philippians, we've got a, another example of how to pray, and it's this prayer of, of the Apostle Paul. And so let this prayer be a guide to, to our prayer life, to your prayer life. And look for, we'll see some priorities that, that we can pull out here of, of what what we can pray for um, in, our, in our own prayer life. And it's interesting, out of all the things that Paul could ask for, can I remember when you pray to God, he's the God of the universe. He can give you anything. Yeah, he spoke a word and all of this came in, into being. So he doesn't ask God for material things. Yeah, remember, he's languishing in prison. Okay, he doesn't ask God to give him a better bed or to you know, give him better bread or whatever it is. He doesn't even ask for personal blessings from God, although that's not necessarily a bad thing to do. But he asks God that his brothers and sisters in Philippi would abound in love and be rooted in God's truth and would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So let's unpack this prayer. So he prays here in verse 9 that their love may abound more and more. So what kind of love is Paul talking about here? Well, a common frame of reference for love is firstly romantic love. 
And it's love that we experience in, in a relationship of mutual attraction. In the right context, this can be a wonderful, uh, God-glorifying love. Yeah, the God's Word celebrates such physical attraction and, and romantic love between man and woman, between husband and wife, most notably in the Song of Songs. Now, the second type of love that often comes to mind is the love that we share between friends. Okay, so this is a non-sexual affection, joy, and love that we experience through deep and long-lasting friendships, and especially between believers. And it's what the Bible calls brotherly affection in, in Romans 12, verse 10. And you could say that this was the, the kind of love that was shared between David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 18. But it is neither of these loves that Paul is describing here in, in this prayer. Instead, the love that Paul has in mind here is a higher love, a selfless love, a, a sacrificial love. It's the kind of love which puts others' needs before your own. A love that, that serves others, a love that lays down your life for others. And it's this kind of love with which God loves us. And how so? Well, God's love for his people is displayed most clearly in the fact that he gave up what was most precious to him, his own beloved son, to come to earth, to humble himself, to serve us, to die on the cross in our place. And that's exactly why John 3.16 proclaims, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So this love is much more focused on giving than receiving. Okay, it's a love that, that is unconditional. It's not dependent on getting something back in return. It's about a love that, that's rooted in, in God's grace. It's not rooted in, in performance and works. You can't earn this love. You can't do enough to, to, to merit this love. And it is this love that Ephesians 5, 2 calls us to walk in. It says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we are to love God and love one another with the same kind of love that God loves us. Yeah, this selfless, sacrificial, and unconditional love. And it's, so it's this love which Paul prays that the Philippians would abound more and more in. Let's bring us to our second point, love rooted in truth from verses 9 to 10. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So the rest of the verse 9 continues to unpack the nature of this love, which Paul prays will abound among the Philippians. And so he prays that the love may abound with knowledge and all discernment. Now on the surface, you 
maybe thinking, well, this, this phrase seems out of place when describing love. And isn't love more about emotions and feelings? And isn't it more subjective in nature compared to this phrase knowledge and discernment? It, 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 those words seem so cold and, and uh, factual. Well, there's certainly a place to express our love through emotions. Look at how the, the, the psalmist expresses his love and desire for God in Psalm 42, 1 to 2. It says, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, the living God. Okay, it's good to express our love through emotions to the Lord. David does it repeatedly in the Psalms. But true love is more than just emotions. Because true love is rooted in truth. And specifically, as we see in verse 9, knowledge and discernment. Because just think about it, you can't really love someone that you don't know. Because yeah, love is more than just say infatuation, it's more than a, a pretty face. To truly love someone, you, you need to spend time with them. You need to observe them, you need to get to understand them, you need to get to know what they like and what they don't like. And so if that's true... When getting to, to know and love other people, well, how much more true is it when it comes to loving God? Because the only way we're able to grow deeper in our love for God is by getting to know Him. And how do we get to know God? Well, how has God revealed Himself to us? Okay, you got a preview through it in the catechism class this morning. Well, how has he provided us knowledge of himself? Only through Jesus Christ, the God-man who reconciles sinful man to God. Hey, there are not many ways to God. Hey, there's only one legitimate way, and that is through Jesus, who's the way and the truth and the life. And that's true because he's the only one who has dealt with sin. Now, God has revealed this knowledge about himself, about Christ. How has he revealed it to us? Through his word. So only in the Bible do we find out what God is like, what his character is like, his, his attributes, how he relates to, to us, his people. Hey, we don't find out about God by doing yoga and looking within ourselves or going on a silent retreat to the mountains and engaging in mystical practices and trying to, to attain some secret knowledge or some prophetic word or a dream and, and a vision. No. Everything that God wants us to know about him He's revealed it to us right here in his word. And further, in God's word, his character, we find, is expressed through his law, okay, which is his instruction to us. So like 
you, get, you better get to know somebody by knowing their likes and dislikes. Well, it's the same with God. Yeah, we can know very clearly what God likes and what God doesn't like. How? Well, by studying the law in the Bible. And the law is summed up in the Ten Commandments. And we find that in, in Exodus 20. The, the law lays out for us how we are to please God. And how are we to please God? Well, it's not some unattainable thing. It's not some mystical hidden knowledge. God's revealed it to us in black and white. Well, we do worship him alone. We mustn't worship idols and false gods. We worship the true and living God, Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're not to make images of him. He doesn't like that. Yeah, we're not we're to honor and treasure his name. We're to keep the Sabbath holy in order to come here and worship him. We're to honor our parents. We're not to hate others. The end point of that hate is murder people. We don't want to murder people. We are to tell the truth. We're to be sexually pure. Be faithful to your spouse. We're to respect private property. That's why we don't steal. And we're to be content with, with the, what the Lord has, has given us. So we don't go and covet other people's possessions. So our love of God is expressed by through our obedience to, to the law. So you may be thinking, sure, aren't love and law mutually exclusive? That sound like opposite things. Law seems harsh and love seems all nice and, and, and happy. Well, not so. This is not how the Bible speaks about the relationship between law and love. And Jesus himself says in Matthew 22, 37 to 38, that the greatest commandments or the greatest laws are what? To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, that's the, the, the fulfillment of the, the, the Ten Commandments. So this is why Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So evidence that your love is genuine is that you desire to please that person, to, to do things that they like. And how much more it is with God. If you want to love God more, well, seek to glorify him by obeying his word. And this is exactly what Paul means here in this prayer that love would abound with all knowledge and discernment that love would grow that for God based on truth about him and this would cause the Philippians and us to to grow in our worship for the Lord so what then is the purpose of loving God with knowledge and discernment well verse 10 carries on and it says so that you may approve what is excellent. So the purpose of loving God with knowledge and discernment is so that we may approve what is excellent. Now, to state the obvious, the truth is not everything is excellent. There are many things that appear excellent and good, but are not. There are certain things 
that we think are good in our own eyes, but are not. Yeah, there's certain things that the world tells us that are good. For example, that love is love and that true fulfillment comes through doing whatever makes us feel good or fulfilling our every sexual desire or avoiding pain at all costs. The world calls those things good, but they, they're not. Okay? The culture has, has, has twisted things around and so calls what is evil good. And then what is good, it calls evil. So we're in a very confusing cultural space at the moment. If we, if we let Netflix and um, social media disciple us, we're going to get a very distorted understanding of what is good and what is evil. And so that is all the more reason to be rooted in the word of God, to, to be catechized, for example, through the, the shorter catechism as the the kids are going to start their journey or started their journey on that. Okay, we've got to be rooted in, in God's truth so we can then discern ourselves what is, 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 is good and evil and approve in the light of God's law exactly what is excellent and what is not excellent. Because the Greek word that's used here for approve, it, it means to, to put to the test, to, to examine. So we have to ask, what in our lives does not meet God's approval in the light of his law? And this is precisely the reason why every week we read God's law publicly here in, in, in the worship service. Okay, and the, the purpose of that is that the law exposes our sinfulness. It shines a light on those areas of our lives that are not yet submitted to the rule of God. And there are always, every single one of us still has areas in our hearts that are not yet fully submitted to the rule of God. We still like to cling to elements of sin. And that's why we need to sit under the law of God to expose these things. That the Lord would shine his light on those areas of our lives and then graciously by his spirit would cause us to confess our sins and repent of those sins. And this is what we call the mortification of, of our sin. Actively putting to death those sins that we still ensnared by. Recognizing them and cutting them out from our lives. And that's a lifelong process as a Christian. But by God's grace he empowers us to do it through the Holy Spirit. So it involves putting to death sins on the one hand, but it also involves embracing the things that God has called excellent. There's not only a negative side to this, there's a positive side as well. Because the law doesn't only show us what to avoid, but the law also shows us the path to true life. The path to an abundant and fulfilling life. It shows how we can best use our lives to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So this is why Psalm 16, 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. 
At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that's describing the path of obedience to God's law. Or we may think, well, why does this even matter? Why should we embrace what God has called excellent and live in that? Well, the rest of verse 10 says, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So there is a goal. There is an end point, an ultimate purpose to loving God and approving what is excellent by living in obedience to him. And that end goal is that we should be pure and blameless and ready for Christ's return. The 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay, God's will is not by popular Contrary to popular belief, it is not that you be happy. It is not that you be fulfilled. It is not that you be rich or successful. It's neither of these things. The will of God is that you become more holy. Is that you become more conformed to Jesus. That you put to death sin in your life and, and, and so doing grow in obedience to God's law. That's the will of God for every single one of our lives. And we saw last week in Philippians 1 6 that God promises to bring to completion the work that He started in us at the day of, of Jesus Christ. So he, he will do it. Okay, he will, he will not break His promise to bring us to the end. But the purpose of our election, of why He started the work in us in the first place, is as Ephesians 1 4 says, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So God empowers us by the Holy Spirit to live a life of purity, to be pure and blameless, to, to do good works that Ephesians 2 10 say that have that that He has prepared beforehand for us. To walk in. So even our good works are ultimately caused by him. He has prepared those for us to walk in. And the purpose of this, well, is, is that we be ready for the day of Christ. And what is the day of Christ? It was that day when Jesus Christ will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. We all of all mankind from all ages will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ. Where we will be raised and we will meet him face to face. And on that day, are you still going to be fooling around in your sins? Are you still going to be living a self-centered life outside of Christ? Are you going to still be pursuing your own idols? Because if you are, you guaranteed sure destruction and an existence outside of God's presence for all eternity. Something too terrible to even imagine. Now, 
Or will you be pure and blameless in Christ? So keeping this in mind, the end point of our faith is the return of Christ. What it does, it gives us perspective on how we are to live our lives now for, for God's glory. Well, how we live now matters. This brings us to our final point. Love leading to righteousness. Verse 11 concludes, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we've seen that the, the evidence of our love for God is shown through living lives that glorify him. Their lives of obedience, pure and blameless lives in anticipation for, for, for his return. But this final verse tells us that while we should most certainly pursue purity and holiness now, it's not our own righteousness that will save us. The reality is that even our best attempts at obedience to God will always be imperfect. We all still wrestle with sin. We all are unable to love God and, perf- and keep his law perfectly. Well, unable to love God perfectly and keep his law perfectly. And if you, if you don't think so, if you think you've, you, you've ticked all the boxes, well, that's itself evidence of sin. It's evidence of your own self-righteousness. And sin, that's the other thing that sin does. It, it, uh, it, um, we lose perspective. We don't see reality for what it is. We don't see the reality of our own sin. Because the truth is that no one on earth has managed to live a perfectly good life according to the law of God. We break, each one of us breaks the Ten Commandments numerous ways on a daily basis. We all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. But in verse 11, it says that there, that there is a righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Okay, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Okay, it is a righteousness that is not of our own. Okay, there's one man who has actually loved God perfectly and obeyed his law perfectly. And that God man is Jesus Christ. That's why he's the only righteous one. Only one who can say in themselves that he is, is, is righteous. And so it's trusting in him, in his good works, that he then clothes us in his righteousness. That he counts his righteousness to us. That he imputes his righteousness to us. So that standing before God on the last day, where all of us will be found one day, whether we like it or not, we will not be found wanting. But instead, we will be found perfect before God who will welcome us into eternal life. Listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 60 says in this regard. How are you righteous before God? The answer is only by true faith in Jesus Christ. 
Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And listen to this. As if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. So brothers and sisters, trust in Jesus Christ, the only righteous one. Trust in him who loves you so much that he laid his life down for you on the cross and canceled your debt of sin and gave you what you don't deserve, this gift of grace the forgiveness of your sins who treats you now clothed in his righteousness just as if you had never sinned. Hope in him who will empower you by his spirit to persevere, to keep you holy and blameless for the day on which he will return. Amen. Let's pray.